اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ان دا نیم اف اللہ دا موسٹ گریشیس ایور مرسیفل السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ مے دا پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز اف اللہ بی اپون یو آل ویلکم ٹو انادر ایپیسوڈ اف دا بریکفاسٹ شو ہیئر آن دا وائس اف اسلام ریڈیو اسٹیشن یو ار لسننگ ٹو مائی سیلف سمر انجلیس احمد اینڈ وی ول بی وتھ یو گاڈ ویلنگ آل دا وے اپ انٹل 9 او کلاک سو اف یو ڈو ہیو اینی کویسچنز اینی ریمارکس اینی کامنٹس دیٹ یو لائک ٹو میک پلیز فیل فری ٹو ڈو سو دا نمبر فور یو ایز آلویز از 0208 6877878 and of course you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at voice of islam uk um we're talking about two segments today um and uh, we do have uh, a quite a lineup of guests as well um and so we'll be speaking to experts uh, in regards to both of those topics and so it's, it'll, it'll be more of a lengthy discussion uh, than we usually would on uh, the Tuesday breakfast show if you if you are familiar with the Tuesday breakfast show you'll know that we usually speak about three topics um but uh, today uh, like i said we're going to be going into two uh, larger topics and the topics for you today are um spider season uh, pre- uh, appreciating arachnids and um, the second segment is going to be emotional intelligence awareness a month um and we'll be speaking about both of these very important and interesting uh topics in just a short while but before we do so uh Jalees, how are you doing this morning yeah alhamdulillah by the grace of god i'm doing well very good very good and uh, what well, i mean we are going to be speaking about this uh, this season anyway as it is the spider season right but uh, but what's the weather looking like uh, for for today and the the, the outlook for the next uh, week as well yeah sure so starting with today we have um, any morning fog in the southwest will lift to another bright and unseasonably warm day with lots of sunshine for the south uh, cloudy and windy in the north with spells of rain pushing south eastwards uh, moving on to tonight um, this evening outbreaks of rain in the north clearing to leave a mix of clear spells and blustery showers windy turning cloudy in the south with outbreaks of heavy rain in the uh, in places towards dawn uh, moving on to tomorrow we see a band of rain will sink southwards across england and wales behind this to the north it will be a brighter cooler day with sunshine and blustery showers to the far north a windy day that is uh, wednesday and moving on to an outlook from for thursday to saturday we see that thursday will be cloudy and cooler in the southern parts of wales and england with rain arriving later a mix of sun and cloud further north with the odd shower cloudy and wet in the south on friday sunny spells in the north but a few showers in the northwest chilly in the north on saturday with sunshine and a few showers sunny spells in the south with just the odd shower so sunny spells and odd shower for the next couple of days okay uh, i mean it's the the heat wave uh, that we've seen in uh, even this month in october uh, which we usually wouldn't um, but uh, um that is also coming to an end today isn't it like you mentioned there's sunny sunny spells but also uh, rain will be starting and all of these other things as well so today is officially the last day of the heat wave so uh, so do make the most of that if you want to go out get some ice cream uh, do you <laughs> um get uh, getting straight into the first topic now spider season appreciating arachnids so 
This may not be one for our arachnophobes uh, with spider season spinning. Let's unveil this soft as silk side. These creepy crawlies are more than just venomous antagonists, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, anyone, um, but have potential to be spectacular superheroes. Why do you think Spider-Man is one of the most popular one according to Google searches? Not to mention Charlotte in Charlotte's Web as well. So we uh, we are going to be speaking about different seasons um, and how... Um, and, and, and different spider stereotypes as well, and how to deal with this autumn pest invasion as well, along with other fascinating facts as well. But getting into the the seasons first of all, so spring, um, which is the mating and reproduction season. Uh, so during spring, many spider species become more active as the weather warms up. Uh, mating season begins for numerous species, leading to increased spider activities as males search for females to mate. So it's also egg-laying season as well. Female spiders lay eggs during spring, often uh, encased in uh, silk sacks. These sacks are strategically placed in sheltered locations to protect them from predators and harsh weather conditions. And there's also abundance as well as so the spring sees a rise in spider populations as newly hatched spiderlings emerge from uh, egg sacks. Spiderlings disperse through various methods, including ballooning, uh, which is when they release their silk threads uh, and catch the wind to travel to new locations. Uh, moving on to summer, we see <clears throat> is the web construction. So many, many spider species uh, such as orb weavers, uh, orb weavers uh, construct intricate webs to capture prey. The warm and humid conditions of summer provide ideal circumstances for web uh, building spiders to thrive so that's you know when when they move into summer this is what usually happens and then, then there's another, another uh, uh, thing about spiders where we see that you know the feeding and growth you know spiders feed actively during summer growing in size and maturity you know there's many insect uh, prey allows you know abundant insect prey allows spiders to thrive and reproduce leading to a stable of increasing population uh, and then obviously after summer when it comes autumn we see um, you know as the weather changes it, it, it it's time for migration indoors um, as temperatures drop in the fall spiders along with other insects you know seek warmth indoors and this is the reason why you would see more insects during autumn or fall inside your home you know this is this migration indoors often leads to increased obviously like i mentioned human spider encounters uh you know preparation for winter uh spiders you know when they prepare for the upcoming winter by finding sheltered locations such as basements attics or corners of rooms you know where they enter a state of uh, uh, where they where they, they enter a state of um, dormancy and um, and you know reduce activity and this is why often you would see in the corners of rooms you would see a lot of spider webs and that's because uh, you know this is the, the autumn time is when they come inside the homes and like I said human spider encounters you know they do increase uh, moving on to winter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Moving on to winter, we see uh, reduced activity. Most spiders, um, most spider species, in fact, you know, exhibit reduced activity during winter. Um, cold temperatures limit their ability to move and hunt. 
for prey. So, you know, it's the complete opposite from summer and winter for spiders as well. Uh, survival strategies, when we talk about that, we see, you know, spiders use uh, various strategies to survive the winter, including um, so hibernation, uh, seeking refuge in in uh, you know various places, various cracks um, and corners, uh, or producing antifreeze-like chemicals to uh, <coughs> endure freezing temperatures and freezing conditions. Um, w- one other aspect we see where uh, egg cases, which is uh, basically some spider species, lay eggs in the fall. Uh, which remain protected in egg cases throughout the winter. The spiderlings hatch in spring when you know conditions are more uh, favorable. Hmm. So that's basically the uh, how they act and what they do during the different seasons. And th- there are a lot of stere- uh, uh, stereotypes as well when it comes to spiders, isn't it? So one of them obviously being that they're dangerous and deadly. But, um, and that's actually the, one of the most common ones as well. Um, and uh, while some spiders do possess venom, the majority are actually harmless to humans. However, this stereotype contributes to arachnophobia, which is the fear of, of spiders, leading to unnecessary fear and anxiety. So uh, another thing is that, they, they're, that they're creepy and disgusting. Well, spiders are often portrayed as creepy and disgusting creatures in popular media. Um, their multiple legs, ability to move silently and silk spinning uh, capabilities sometimes evoke feelings of disgust. Um, this stereotype perpetuates uh, negative perceptions, making it difficult for people to appreciate the vital role spiders play in the ecosystem. Um, Obviously, it is the month of October as well. These are uh, associated with Halloween and fair as well. Um, And they're commonly associated with Halloween, a holiday celebrated with spooky decorations. And this connection reinforces the fear factor associated with spiders, portraying them as symbols of fear and horror. Um, also, them being weavers of tangled webs, the imagery of spiders spinning uh, intricate, sticky webs is widely used in literature and movies. Um, while many uh, spiders do create webs to catch prey, not all species exhibit this behavior. And this uh, stereotype oversimplifies the diverse range of spider species and their unique hunting strategies. Um, there's folklore and superstitions. So spiders are often featured in folklore and superstitions, uh, and some cultures associate um, spiders with luck and prosperity, while others actually believe that, that they bring bad omens. And these cultural beliefs contribute to varied perceptions of spiders globally. Um, and we, we've kind of touched on uh, inaccuracy in in media, but there's fear of encounters as well. So many people fear encountering spiders in their homes or outdoor spaces. Uh, and this fear often leads to immediate attempts to kill or remove the spider, uh, even if it poses no threat. So such fear-driven reactions perpetuate negative stereotypes and hinder understanding uh, of these arachnids as well. So these are some of the... Uh, spider spider stereotypes uh, that we see, and these are not always accurate, like we mentioned. Um, but we'll we'll get into that in in just a short while. Uh, but before we do so, 
We do have with us on the line our first uh, guests for the show. We do have with us on the line Angela and Ray Hale, the, the married couple. Uh, Angela and Ray Hale are spider experts and uh, currently run phobia courses at uh, Drusillus uh, Zoo Park. Ray is a lecturer on insects, spiders and are all in aspects of natural history, while Angela uh, worked at uh, Drusillus at the resident spider expert prior to retiring. Um, the couple also um, are members of the British Arachno. Uh, Arachnological Society, as well as uh, committee members of the British uh, Tarantula Society, with uh, Ray as the vice chair and Angela working as the secretary. Given their extensive knowledge and expertise on spiders, they have appeared in countless TV and radio programs over the past 40 years. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you for being with us today. Um, with, with the ongoing spider season, many people are actually fearful of uh, having spiders enter their home. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, whilst you willingly have 150 as pets, I mean, I'm not sure if I would go that far. But uh, why do you, they? Why do you, they invite themselves in at a time when we will be cooped up indoors? Well, it's been a really good summer this year for for insects and um, also a good summer for spiders and lots of food about. But at this time of the year, it's getting a little bit cooler. Mm-hmm. Our houses are still quite warm um, and probably getting warmer over the next few weeks as the chilly nights come along. And um, it's the male spiders that are wandering into our houses, unfortunately, looking for the female spiders. Um, the, the female spiders may or may not be in our house and probably be in our garage or, or um, shed in the garden. Um, but they're, they're giving off pheromones looking for the females because they, they are very short-lived, the males. They don't have a very long lifespan and they have to find a female to, to mate mm-hmm. during that short period. The, the short answer really is that the, the males enter, your, in, enter the house because it's warm and, and they're looking for love. <laughs> Very good. They're, just, they're, look, they're looking. They're looking for love, really. Yeah. Um, and and the, the truth of the matter is, you know, it is getting cold outside, uh, chillier at night now in the UK. Um, and and spiders, like anything else, like to be warm. And so, the the females already tucked up somewhere nice in, in a, a tube web, and the males just just enter the house and then can't find a female because they are relatively poor sighted and and um, literally sort of wander around aimlessly until they die. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, just just a follow up question, as uh, like I mentioned, 150 as pets. So how 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 did that start? And is I mean, tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um. The the reality was, we myself and Angela have been married for 40 years, and we we started keeping pet tarantulas way back when we we first got married. Mm-hmm. And at one stage, I have to say, we we did have about 500 oh, adult wow. tarantulas. Um. But we, we, we were members, we are, and remain members of the, of the British Tarantula Society, and we, we have always been fascinated, and we keep and breed, and I lecture, and it, it literally is, it was about conservation and the, negating the need to take these animals from the wild, so we were heavily into captive breeding. The, the truth of the matter is that a lot of people in the UK and all over the world do keep exotic pets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've always maintained that the, 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 the um, basically, if you keep an, any animal, then you should just know how to look after it. You know, read the book, do the research. And but uh, these days, we, we we're down to 150 because we tend to use them simply for display, um, education. education for educational purposal. purposes. When I when I'm lecturing or Angela's, we're doing displays at the zoos and things. 
Um, so it really is an education. And of course, the other reason we get them mm. is because young young kids get them um, at about 13, 14. By the time they get to 18, they go to university and often leave them with the parents. Mm-hmm. And, and the parents go, mm, I don't really want these, to be fair. Um, <laughs> and so we end up sort of rescuing them. Because we have to bear in mind that some tarantulas... Not not normal spiders as a house spiders, but some tarantulas can live up to twenty five years. Oh, so you know you you can have you know this is a pet for life, not just for Christmas, shall we yeah. say? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to you have to be aware that you're taking on a commitment, um, like any animal, really, cat, dog, whatever you take on, that that is a commitment. Mm. But they're really useful to use for education. But we use them for education purposes with with the, with the phobias. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, do do you do you feel uh, people are a little uh, afraid to come to your house, <laughs> whether it's to return the ketchup bottle or something like that? <laughs> no, you, no. When you walk into a house, it's just a normal house. I think, okay. I, I think as, Angela, as Angela said, I think the problem is that people people. T- I mean, all our neighbours know. Yeah. But uh, they tend to think that they're going to walk into my house and find cobwebs and bits of dead body mm-hmm. uh, hanging in webs. And the reality is, all of our all of our collection is, is in my office. Okay. Um, and so you walk into my house. There's a TV, <laughs> a sofa, the, the normal things you find in the anyone's normal things. house. Really. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, but just before having you on, we were speaking a little bit about the stereotypes, and and, and one of them is obviously that uh, people um, view or society views arachnids so negatively, um, even though they're they're mostly harmless. So what what can we do about that, and why do you think that's the case? Well, they they. Unfortunately, they get lumped in with Halloween and, and they're portrayed in a bad light in um, scary movies, really. Yeah. And people take that on and what they don't understand, they fear. So it is the fear of the unknown. So, um, you know, if you if you see a scary movie or, or your mum's seen a scary movie and then he's scared of spiders, that's passed down to you. Uh, as, as we say, you know, uh, many people have many misconceptions about many things. And 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 that's not that applies to everything, not just spiders. Yeah. And and the that what we try to do um, is is literally explain to people because film producers, as, as Angela says, have always used zombies and and ghosts mm-hmm. to scare us. And then you put a spider in there, of course. Whereas we probably never want never want to meet a, a zombie or a ghost. Um, we know we're not going to, but we do know we may one day meet a spider. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I think this fear becomes inherited. I mean, you know, myself and Angela, we spend a lot of time abroad, um, out, out in, in, in rainforests, actually looking for, for spiders and tarantulas. Um, and, and the reality is we, we find very, very few which are potentially dangerous to, to humans. You know, in the UK, there are no dangerous spiders. Mm-hmm. There are no uh, potentially dangerous spiders. Um, but I, I think it's it's this misconception, this this thing that we do, as, as a species, the human race, we do like to be scared. Yeah. Um, it's part of our inbuilt, inbuilt thing, and we like to be afraid. And so we watch horror films, and of course, then we get horror films with spiders in, and it, it's a knock-on effect, and it 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 it. it goes down generations mm-hmm. okay um and lastly um we, we we recognize obviously your personal efforts to help people overcome their arachnophobia um by running courses at, at the zoo and think other things as well your lectures um how do you manage that even uh, transforming some participants into tarantula pet parents as well well it's all about education so i find that the more i know about spiders 
the more fascinating they become. Mm. And when people start to learn about spiders and we put away the, the myths that they've had in their head that maybe to them is true and they've, they've been told it's true, um, the fear it just disappears. And when they find out that at the end of the day they've got nothing to fear with these spiders, they they tend to look at them in a different light. It's it's really strange because there's, I mean, we we've just completed two very successful courses this weekend at Drusilla's, mm-hmm. um, and we on the first course we started off with six very very um, arachnophobic um, delegates, um, you know, to to the extent of people crying, they they just, oh. just couldn't cope. Um, but by the end of it, there's a point in the course where I think the penny drops and they suddenly realise that all the years that they've been afraid of spiders and, and that what whatever they've been told, we tell them to forget. And, and, and we just say, trust us. And we will, we will when we do it through teaching, education, and to be fair, gradual exposure as well. We show them mm-hmm. a few goodly toys, photographs. And before and before you know before long, they suddenly go. You know, these guys they they stop seeing them with hatred and start seeing them with sympathy. Hmm. And and at that point, you know you know that they've turned. And and every single delegate on the course over the two days passed with flying colours. And um, it, it whatever happens in life, we we know that we've done something useful and helped people. So it, it for us, it's a it's a it's a big bonus. Awesome. And it is. It is normal for people to cry, and it's usually the point that they actually get to um, pick the spider up or or c- catch the spider in a glass. Mm. At that point, the relief of it makes them cry. But that's a good thing because they know they've got over their fears. I, th- I think the, peop- the the problem is that the, the, the most most people who are arachnophobic and some who are not have this have this idea. They have preconceived ideas of what the spider will do. Uh, what, what the spider will do, whether you know they think it will actually um, run run up their arm mm-hmm. or, or, or settle on their head or something. When it doesn't do and when, that. And when it, when it doesn't do that, they suddenly think, ah, all these years I've been thinking it will do that. It will chase me. It will chase me, and, and it doesn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, but Angela, I mean, Angela, as I say, her nickname for many years has been Tarantula. Tarantula, yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's known as the spider lady. So, you know, we, we, as I say, we... we go to great lengths to to promote that idea because it is i have to say it's 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 unusual or it was unusual it's not so unusual now for a, for a lady or a woman to be involved in 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 keeping spiders but these days it's very popular with, with both sexes and, and that's mm-hmm. great and and but but when angela shows the, the people on the course you know the correct way to pick up a house spider the, the look on their face is priceless and they, they suddenly realise that, that there is nothing to be afraid of. Awesome. I mean, and it's, it's, it's all about understanding, isn't it? When we when we come to realise that they don't actually pose a threat and uh, and all of these other things, then obviously uh, with that mindset and with that understanding, we'll be able to, to get over our fears as well. Um, awesome. Uh, thank you, uh, Angela and Ray, for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions. And we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was uh, Angela and Ray, uh, the married couple who are spider experts and currently run phobia courses at Drusilla's Zoo Park. Um, uh, Awesome. Um, An insightful uh, conversation and discussion uh, with them, isn't it, Jalice? Indeed, indeed. I mean, it's it's an interesting topic and, you know, uh, to, to learn that, there are people, you know, who who do have spiders, even if it's 150 as pets. Uh, something I've 
heard for the first time as well. I mean, it's, it's interesting as well. Of course, they did mention that they do learn from uh, what well, they study the spiders, and uh, you know, it's it's a interesting thing to 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 hear as well. Um, we do have uh, with us another guest, uh, Martin um, Nicholas who is a field biologist with 25 years of experience looking for uh, spiders in places such as Indonesia, Peru, uh, Mexico and the uh, Windward Islands. Um, Apart from being a field biologist, he also trains jungle guides in uh, South America um, on uh, arachnids and has worked as uh, presenter on several TV and radio documentaries on spiders, scorpions, and uh, other animals. Uh, Martin is a uh, public relations officer for the uh, British Tarantula Society, the largest and oldest organization of its kind in the world. Uh, Currently, he lives in uh, Somerset with his wife of one week with around 50 tarantulas and other spiders, centipedes, and scorpions, although he has looked after 2,000 at a time in the past. Uh, Martin Nicholas, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. A very good morning to you, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we are indeed talking about a very um, interesting um, topic. Uh, having become known to the media as Spider-Man, um, could you please walk us through the origins of this nickname? And you know, briefly recount your your conversation with with Stan Lee, of course, uh, showcased in your PBS Nature feature, you know, "True Adventures of the Ultimate Spider Hunt." Exactly. Yeah, it's a terrible name for a program, wasn't it? I always thought. <laughs> anyway, but yes, uh, we I, I was uh, incredibly lucky uh, to uh, to be able to meet Stan, um, the the original the, uh, the the originator and writer of the of all the spider-man films yeah. um, and of course uh, ex- executive producer for all the marvel comic uh, movies as well but yes yeah, i my my some of my very earliest memories were walking along the country roads where my grandmother used to live um going along feeding uh, flies to the spiders in the hedgerow um and i guess i never really grew out of it um and it's now just the scale that's changed and and now i go around the world doing pretty much the same sort of thing so i guess i never really grew out of it mm-hmm. um and so, uh, yeah, I, I was I was lucky enough because I was asked um, you know, when you when you do enough trips looking for spiders, people get interested. And so, when I was approached by a, a television company if I would like to make uh, make this program um, relating the real superpowers of uh, of actual spiders to the powers that uh, that Spider Man, all the, the the powers that Stan Lee gave to Spider Man, um, and just comparing and just seeing you know how how accurate it was if we were to remake Spider Man, what would he what was his new superpowers be? And uh, yeah, it was um, it, it was immense fun. We went uh, we went all the way around the world: uh, French Guyana, uh, Mexico, uh, North America, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a huge amount of fun. Um, and to meet Stan, of course, was the uh, the real uh, the, the cherry on top of the cake, uh, certainly for me, anyway. Indeed, I mean, I mean, I can. I can imagine. Uh, obviously, meeting Stanley, um, you know, must be must be a very, very great experience as well. Um, you know, um, moving on to the, the uh, another another question is in your in your um, search for uh, exotic spiders, um, you know, from the uh, Goliath uh, bird eater to uh, Tuxin blonde tarantula. Um, I hope I did, uh, you know, mention these names right. Um, you know, very good. Well, well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one that stands out to us is your uh, chicken-eating spider hunt. 
Um, you know, yeah. could you please tell us about that? Yes, certainly. So the um, uh, the, the 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 chicken spider. Um, uh, the, the story came to me. Um, this is the best part of thirty years ago now, and it was uh, it was an engineer who uh, works in the southeastern Peruvian rainforest in the in the, in the Amazon there. Um, and he was speaking to a farmer. His farmer said that he was having a trouble, that he was losing lots of uh, lots of his young chickens. Uh, and the, uh, my engineer friend asked him if it was uh, if it was uh, big cats or if it was snakes or something like that. And he said, "No, senor, su araña palita. No, senor, it's the chicken spider." <laughs> and so th- this was too good a story not to go and have a look. And so I flew out to Peru with uh, with my team, uh, and we started uh, started looking around some of the little uh, little jungle clearings. Sure enough, there were these gigantic black spiders, and they live at the side of the jungle where the uh, where the farmers are uh, doing subsistence farming and where they have uh, a stock of little basically wild um, or uh, not wild but. Uh, uh, free range uh, chickens that uh, just go feed themselves um, and they give them eggs and they give them meat when they uh, um, when they uh, when, when the, the the farmers want them um, and sometimes during the night uh, when the chickens are, uh, are just sort of going back towards their coops uh, these big black spiders um, grab a young chick as it's passing the entrance of its burrow so they're not actively going out and hunting hunting down chickens but yeah th- these things to put them in in scale these are large black spiders with legs probably about as thick as our fingers wow. our little fingers uh and the leg span is about 30 centimeters wow, wow. they're huge That's... they are huge and they live together as well so they're communal spiders and so you can find up to about 100 big tarantulas in the same nest now that would be the nightmare for some people uh, but it was a dream for me. <laughs> did did you did, let me just let me just get this? Uh, uh, I think I maybe I misheard you. Did you say each of their legs was thirty centimeters long? No, no. Sorry, what I said there is, is the leg span. So this is if they were flattened out. Oh, okay. Um, this, All is, right. this is so so about the size of a dinner plate, wow. like a large dinner plate. Oh, I yeah. see. I see. Huge spiders. <laughs> That's... But, but but actually harmless to us, even though they look you know big and formidable and they look very dangerous. Um, and their fangs can be about an inch long, you know, so mm. you know, t- 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 two centimeter fangs. Um, the venom's actually very low toxicity, and so if you were bitten by uh, a spider like that, like the chicken spider, um, yeah, it would hurt because yeah, you're being stabbed by two big fangs. But a, it's very unlikely to happen because they really don't attack humans. They're not human spiders; they're chicken spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, but but secondly, the venom is very low toxicity, so it would be similar to a bee sting. I see. I see. Okay. Um. I mean that's really interesting. Uh, uh, you know, for just just for the benefit of our listeners, um, could you tell us uh, a bit about your you know BTS and your upcoming thirty um, seventh exhibition? Yes, indeed. Yes. So I've I've um, I've worked for the BTS, uh, the British Tarantula Society. Um, I think I've been on the committee now for the best part of uh, twenty years. Um, we are the largest organisation of its kind, um, and we have uh, a, a lecture series which we do at the beginning of the year. Um, and in May, and May the nineteenth uh, uh, next year, Sunday the May the nineteenth, at the Warwickshire Exhibition Centre is going to be uh, one of the largest shows um, probably in the world. And there will be a hundred thousand plus uh, tarantulas and scorpions and centipedes. And, uh, and and insects uh, that, that that are going to be there, and we'd we'd love to have as many people as long as you as uh, as, as as would like to come. Um, great cure for phobias, um, a great cure for um, uh, well, it's it's a it's a cheap, uh, easy zoo day out uh, as long as you uh, as long as you like to, uh, tarantulas. 
Uh-huh. I see. <clears throat> Sorry, um, just I've just got two follow-up questions. Uh, one was you said uh, 100,000, you said, will be, will be present, uh, you know, spiders or scorpions will be present in this exhibition, did you say? Yes. So, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. How, how, it, how is it like looking after 100,000? I can imagine that must be uh, quite difficult. Maybe I'm, I'm sure you have a huge team who, who, who do look after them, right? What what I should say is that b- b- being a show, this is uh, this is someone for this is somewhere for traders to uh-huh. uh, to, uh, to to sell the uh, sell the babies that they bred over the course of the year, um, and where new species get showcased, um, you know, and uh, and we have a version of what is basically the spider world's version of crafts uh, for dogs, um, except we have it for spiders, and so you know, spiders are judged on their uh, on the, on the thickness of their hair, the brightness of their coloration, their size. Uh, you know, and so it, it, it very, much, very much is like a dog or a cat show just for spiders. Oh, and they've got to be twice as good because they've got twice as many legs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I see, I see. Uh, I mean, uh, it's an interesting topic. Uh, it was lovely speaking with you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure My our gosh. listeners did enjoy uh, speaking with you and l- learning about uh, everything that you do. Um, thank you for joining us. Have a lovely day and a beautiful week ahead. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for my, for, uh, Thank you very much for joining us. That was uh, Martin Nicholas of the uh, British Tarantula Society um, and who has become known in the media as uh, Spider-Man um, and uh, quite rightly so. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a very interesting uh, discussion, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, meeting Stan as well and uh, being being uh, called uh, Sp- Spider-Man as well or, or being uh, known as, uh, in the media as Spider-Man. Um, and, and what he mentioned about uh, what might be a nightmare for others was a dream for him. <laughs> I, mean, I can't, I can't imagine that being a dream for anyone. But obviously, I mean, that's uh, that's uh, he's he's been into that since uh, since his childhood, and like you said, he hasn't grown out of that, which is an excellent thing. It's always good to pursue whatever you are interested in, um, and whatever you have a liking towards as well. So that was a, a very interesting um, conversation as well. Um, we're going to be speaking a little bit about uh, how to deal with the uh, autumn pest invasions um, and th- there's a few things that we can do right so there's there's ceiling entry points so we can inspect our homes for gaps cracks and openings where spiders can enter um, and uh, seal these entry points using caulk or weather stripping to prevent spiders from getting inside there's a uh, regular cleaning as well um, our first uh, set of guests um, we, when we were speaking to uh, Angela and Ray Hale um, they mentioned that obviously they have 150 uh, spiders, but it's, it doesn't mean uh, in their house. But it doesn't mean that there's spider webs everywhere or, or dead people uh, in 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 the in the house or other things like that. There's there's regular cleaning um, that we can do. There's uh, keeping our home clean and clutter free. Um, regularly dusting and vacuuming to remove spider webs, eggs, and hiding spots, and paying special attention to corners uh, behind furniture and in basements or attics as well. And, uh, outdoor maintenance as well. So there's uh, trimming bush, uh, bushes, trees and plants near our homes, and spiders often use overhanging branches of foliage as a bridge to enter homes. Um, we mentioned the earlier uh, method of ballooning as well. So keeping vegetation away from your, your house reduces the chances of spiders finding their way inside. Uh, there's natural deterrence, so we can use natural spider repellents such as citrus peels, vinegar, or essential oils like peppermint, uh, tea tree, or even lavender. 
So we can spray these substances in areas where spiders are likely to enter as they dislike the smell and will avoid those areas. There's proper lighting. So switching outdoor lights to yellow or sodium vapor uh, bulbs, um, insects which uh, spiders prey on are less attracted to these types of uh, lights, reducing the spider population around your home. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, we can use spider catchers uh, as well. So instead of squashing spiders, we can use a spider uh, catcher to trap them gently. Um, these devices allow you to catch spiders without harming them, and then we can obviously release them outside. Uh, we can install screens as well. So we can ensure that windows and doors have screens without holes or tears. Um, and this actually prevents spiders from entering uh, your home while still allowing ventilation. Um, uh, reduce moisture. Uh, spiders are attracted to damp environments. So we can use a dehumidifier in damp areas like basements to, to reduce humidity levels, uh, making the environment less appealing for spiders. There's natural predators. So encourage uh, natural predators of spiders, such as certain types of birds, lizards, or even other non-venomous spider species uh, to inhabit your garden. Uh, and these predators help control the spider population naturally. Um, and obviously, there's uh, also consulting pest controllers. Also, if the spider infestation is severe and persistent, you can consider consulting professional pest uh, control services. Uh, and they can assess the situation and implement targeted eco-friendly solutions to manage the problem effectively as well. Um, Jadis, obviously, we have uh, um, some fascinating facts as well um, when it comes to spiders as well, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. I mean, um, you know, just before we get into the, you know, the fascinating facts, there is one thing um, that I did want to mention. Uh, you, you were, you, you mentioned some things of how to, you know, deal with, uh, you know, autumn pest invasions, and obviously this is because, uh, like we mentioned in the beginning of the show, it's because, you know, during this, uh, from the summer when it come, when we transition from summer into autumn, we see that, uh, you know, because the weather will be quite cold um outside you know spiders and insects they do migrate um inside indoors and you know there are more interactions between humans and spiders um you know this is obviously why we were mentioning um this is why we were mentioning uh, how to deal with uh pest invasions but there was one thing that did come to mind was that if you do if a person who is um afraid of spiders or has a phobia or you know a little is 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 uncomfortable being in a room where there is a spider um they should just remember that the only thing scarier than seeing a spider in your room is losing that spider in your room because once you lose the spider once it's out of your eyes once it's out of your eyesight then at that m uh, moment you will then obviously uh, your your brain will just start questioning where where is it? I have to I have to see it. Where is it? Is it is it crawling on me? Is it on me? Is it around me? Uh, so you know these are these are certain things that uh, just if you are a uh, if you do have a phobia or if you do if you are um, slightly afraid of uh, spiders, um, then you know just do bear that in mind. Um, again, when when we look at uh, fascinating facts about spiders, 
we see that the you know the nursery rhyme origin uh, origins of um, I believe it's the little uh, little Miss Muffet the nursery rhyme little Miss Muffet dates back to um, the early uh, 19th century um, it is believed to be inspired by the daughter of dr. Thomas Muffet who is a who was a, re, um, a renowned a well-known well-known um, entomologist uh, the story, you know, portrays a young girl um, frightened by a spider, uh, and reflecting the common fear of spiders during that era. So, I mean, that's uh, it's, it's, it's a it's a fascinating fact um, about this uh, the uh, little uh, Miss Muffet. And uh, when we look at the spider diagrams. Uh, uh, no, sorry. The the, the uh, brainstorming tool when we uh, the, the spider diagrams, you know, um, also known as mind maps or concept maps, are widely used as uh, brainstorming tools. Uh, they are called so due to their central idea uh, or, or concept uh, being represented in the center and uh, branching out into you know various related um, ideas resembling the structure of a spider's web uh you know this visual representation aids uh, it helps in organizing um thoughts and ideas you know effectively uh when we look at the strength of spider silk we see that um spider spider silk is incredibly strong and you know it's lightweight making it one of the most uh, durable materials found in nature you know some research some researchers um, estimate that spider silk weight for weight is stronger than steel right so you know some researchers they 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 say this you know weight for weight is stronger than steel, uh, steel and scientists study spider silk you know to understand its you know unique properties um and potential applications in you know various in various fields uh, i mean th- w- there are uh, many more uh, fascinating facts but uh, i believe uh summer i believe we do have a guest with us Yes. Uh, am, I, am I right? Yes, we have uh, Professor Sarah uh, Goodacre, who is a professor of evolutionary biology and genetics at the University of Nottingham's School of Life Sciences. She works in the area of spider genetics with a focus on trying to understand how spiders are beneficial parts of the ecosystem around us, as well as learning how to copy their silks for use in medicine and engineering. Um, and this is the second time that she is uh, is with us here on The Breakfast Show. So, assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me back on. You're very welcome, and thank you for 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 being with us. Um, we're speaking about uh, a very interesting topic uh, and something which is very close to home for you as well. Um, could you kindly start uh, off by telling us about spiders' special sailing skills that you've uh, studied in your spider lab at uh, Nottingham University, please? Well, that's, I'm really glad you've asked me about that. So, really, spiders use their silk and use their bodies and do things that maybe people aren't aware of, maybe your listeners aren't aware of. So one of the things we discovered in my lab was that spiders, if they land, little baby money spiders, if they land on the surface of, uh, of water, they can put their legs up to catch the wind as sails. They can actually mm-hmm. throw out silk and anchors as well to help them in steering. Um, and probably we think this is all about getting to land or getting into a position where they can tip their bodies upwards Spin a long line of silk that goes upwards vertically into the sky uh, and use that as a sail to lift off from the surface of the water. And so eventually they reach dry land. 
Oh wow! I mean, I mean, I uh, we've we we we've researched to to talk about the topic, but I I, I was unaware of that as well. Uh, very interesting. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for that. Um, in light of that, what what crucial role do spiders uh, play in our environment uh, and ecosystem as well, including our own homes? So spiders are a really important part of the ecosystem. They eat um, insect pests. They kind of keep things in balance. They're meant to be here. They're meant to be in a in a meadow, in a farmer's field, in your back garden. If anyone has any lovely roses in their front garden, you might notice sometimes they get black fly. Well, crab spiders will often sit on roses um, and um, and eat the black fly as they land. So they're a part of the natural balance of the world, if you like. Mm. Um, and it's really important, probably, um, for, for people to realise how sensitive they are to things that we do to the environment. So if you spray insecticides, then a spider is much, much more sensitive to it than the insects you were trying to get. Um, and so they are really, um, at our, um, um, they're very vulnerable to the mm-hmm. things that we do. And so what we really want to do, and what I'd like to do, is to make sure that everyone's aware of the useful things they do, and not just because they give us blueprints and templates for making artificial silk, which is really useful, but actually as part of the natural balance um, of the things that you see in your garden or you know, in a rainforest um, or in a, in a farmer's field. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, uh, especially what you said uh, in regards to how it has a purpose, isn't it? I mean, we we believe as Muslims as well that uh, everything has been made for a purpose. However small and insignificant it might seem to us, it definitely has a part to play. And we we may not come to realize it right now, but uh, I mean, obviously for spiders, we already know, isn't it? But for for other things, um, it's it's just a matter of understanding that thing. And then we will come to realize why God Almighty uh, made such a thing as well. Um, you mentioned uh, spider silk. Why is it beneficial to study spider silk and what role could it potentially play in medicine and engineering? The really, really important thing about spider silk that makes it different from, let's say, um, insect silk that you might use to make a silken garment, silk clothes, silk tie or something like that. The difference between that silk and spider silk is that spider silk is not rec- not thought of as foreign by our, our bodies. So if you were to take spider silk and make it artificially, which is what we do, and you were to use it to stitch up a wound, for example, mm-hmm. the, your body, the human cells, are not recognizing that as something to react against. Insect silk, it would react against, but spider silk, it's known as biocompatible, so okay. it's compatible with the cells that of our bodies. And that's just an accident, really. It's not necessarily the case that the spider would ever use it in that way, obviously, mm. but it's something that, that just... And so what we have is this, not just one type of silk, the spider silk family as a whole has produced thousands of different types, and they are all different they have similarities too, but they are all different and they perform different purposes. And that's because the spiders use them um, in very many different ways. They use them to sometimes to lasso their prey or they use them to wrap their eggs to keep them safe. Some of them even build um, nursery webs to keep the little spiderlings occupied and somewhere safe. And then they sit next to it and keep guard. So there are all sorts of ways in which they use the silk. And it means they're all very different. So what I'm really trying to do is to explore some of those differences and see how we could use them. But the bottom line is that everything you make is quite kind to a human body, mm. and that's why it's useful in medicine. Awesome, awesome. Um, and, and just lastly, the, the, the spider lab at the Nottingham University conducts, obviously, uh, research by using spiders uh, as model systems. Um, what types of spiders are most fitting for research? Well, this is a really good question. So we try not to keep too many. I mean, I'd rather that your 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 average spiders out in your garden and not in my lab. Um, but there are spiders that we keep 
um, because we can study them because they produce silk for us. So, for example, spiders that are used to living in dry environments that don't need to be outside in a humid um, and cool autumnal day like it is here, for example. So we do have some tarantulas in the lab that produce lots of really, really tough silk. And one of the things I'm working on at the minute, actually, is how silk interacts with water, which is kind of topical if you live in the UK and it, you know, it rains a lot in the autumn. Mm. Um, but silks, some silks, actually, um, they, they shrink when they get wet. So they do the opposite of a saggy jumper. Mm-hmm. A jumper that might uh, might sag when it got wet and rainy and you come in from a, a rainy walk and you think, oh, my clothes are now baggy. Yeah. Well, a spider silk actually does the opposite. Um, and so it's quite interesting to study those properties. Now, interestingly, uh, a tarantula silk does not do that because it's not designed to, to work in an area where it rains a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, so we do have spiders in the lab. But sometimes, actually, the, the ones that, that I was talking about that sail, um, we use little baby money spiders and we catch them from outside, see whether they sail or not. And, you know, you, you talk about things that we can't see and yet we're not sure what the, the purpose is. I think spiders are a really good example of that because quite often, when you start studying them, you realise there's so much more to them than meets the eye, and we don't yet know what the, the purpose is, but it almost certainly has one. So, for example, they have tiny little hairs on their legs that probably act as pressure sensors, but mm-hmm. we don't really know how they work, really know what they're sensing. Um, and so uh, the more you look at them, you discover, and you more the more you realise how marvellously intricate they are and how they are part of a wonderful puzzle out there of interactions between individuals, between between species uh, that create the ecosystem that we us every day. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely, I couldn't agree more. It's all, it's all about understanding them, and and that's why we 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 put so much focus on research and understanding these things, isn't it? Um, thank you, uh, for 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 being with us once again. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that's we are coming up to the news as well. I uh, would have loved to have you on for longer, but uh, that's all that the time that we have for today. Thank you uh, again. We hope you. you have a wonderful day ahead. Very much indeed. Bye bye. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Sarah Goodacre, who is a professor of evolutionary biology and genetics at the University of Nottingham School Life of Sciences, and she was sharing her thoughts with us. Um, we are going to be quickly uh, listening to an audio clip of the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul, um, in regards to why do some people have phobias uh, like that of spiders? Hazrat, uh, why do certain people have phobias like, for example, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, or hydrophobia, the fear of water, and so many other things? Whereas some other people don't have them. What is the reason for that? I think it's because of some early childhood fears. Some people, some children are afraid of uh, insects because they might have disturbed them, particularly during their childhood. So the phobias always go into the subconsciousness of such children, and when they grow up, they grow up along with this phobia. That was a answer by the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, answering why do some people have phobias like that of spiders? Um, we do, uh, when, I mean, when we look at the Islamic aspect, uh, we see that um, the, the Islam has given 
uh, importance um, to various things, and we we see that even in the Holy Quran, there is a um, there is a surah, there is a chapter which is named Surah Al Ankabut, which is named after the spider as well. Um, you know, there are various themes uh, that are mentioned in that uh, surah. So we do see that Islam has uh, mentioned a spider. But when, when we when we study the history of Islam, when we study the history of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we see that you know there's a one famous story which was you know when the holy prophet was uh, taking refuge in a cave during his hijra during his migration um from uh, mecca to uh, medina we see that according to tradition a you know a spider a spun a web um, at the entrance of the cave and a uh, dove laid its eggs there right so when the pursuing meccans arrived the 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 meccans that were that were um, pursuing the prophet muhammad and his companion um hazrat abu bakr uh, may allah be uh, pleased with him and, and may may uh, uh, we see that um, when the, when the meccans arrived they saw that a web and uh, a web in front of the cave and then they concluded that the cave had not been entered in a long time, seeing that the spider was there. You know, this event is often cited as a miracle and protection of God. Now, uh, I, I should mention that there are, you know, certain narrations that do say that this is um, uh, that that uh, have uh, said that this is something um, uh, uh, um, that the the chain of narration it may may be weak, but. Nonetheless, we we do see that such miracles can take place, and where when we see such a miracle like this, um, you know, the, the Meccans when they were after the Prophet Muhammad, and when they saw that a spider had had a you know uh, made a web at the entrance of the cave, um, in in that way, God Almighty, you know, saved uh, his beloved Prophet, um, and we see in the the way he did so was by by you know uh, you know commanding or choosing a spider to you know to to. Uh, spin, uh, spin its web in front of the cave, leading the the Meccans who were pursuing the Prophet to to think that no one had entered um, that cave. I mean, such such a uh, such a story is something often uh, mentioned um, in, in, in when we study the history of Islam. You know, when we when we also when we there's a there's a lesson that we can always take um, as Muslims. We can take lessons from from everything as God Almighty has created many things, and it is important for us that we ponder over them and take lessons. Uh, when we look at spiders. They are known for their patience and persistence, you know, in spinning their webs. You know, this characteristic is sometimes associated with the concept, right? So when you when you when you when you study the uh, spiders, something that would come in mind that when you see them, the char- characteristics of their spinning their webs is, uh, is associated with the concept of sabr, of uh, patience in Islam. You know, Muslims are encouraged to be patient in facing life's challenges and adversities. And when we see the the time and the in the detail that a spider goes into, you know, uh, when when is uh, crafting its web, uh, when it's weaving its web, we see that it's it goes into a lot of patience. It takes a lot of patience to go and and do that. We are reaching um, the uh, news. So here is the eight o'clock news. <laughs> You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ میں پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز آف اللہ بی اپن یو آل ویلکم ٹو دی ویلکم بیک سوری to um, the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 10th of October, 2023. Um, if you are uh, just tuning in, then in the first hour, we were talking about uh, spiders, uh, the fear uh, of spiders as well. And obviously, as, as it is uh, that season, spider season, um, so what we can do to prevent them from entering our homes, etc. as well. Um, now we're going to be speaking about Emotional Intelligence Awareness Month. So we have all heard of IQ, but what of EQ? What is, that is the emotional quotient. Uh, so this segment will delve into this less heard of valuable intelligence we have utilized throughout human evolution, with it simultaneously being Mental Health Month and Day. Um, emotional Intelligence Awareness is, of course, of the essence. So... There's a dual definition and we'll get into uh, all of the different meanings and the components and competencies and uh, the ability model of emotional intelligence and other such things as well. But the intrapersonal uh, emotional intelligence refers to an individual's ability to understand and manage their own emotions effectively. Um, It uh, involves self-awareness, self-regulation and uh, self-motivation. Um, so there's uh, uh, an interpersonal emotional intelligence refers to an individual's ability to recognize um, to to recognize um, the and, and navigate the emotions of others effectively. So it encompasses skills like empathy, effective uh, communication, and conflict resolution. So in summary. Intrapersonal emotional intelligence is about understanding and managing one's own emotions, while interpersonal emotional intelligence is about recognizing and navigating the emotions of others. Um, we'll get into the to the core components um, and other very important things when it comes to this topic in just a short while. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line Professor Konstantin uh, Pedri, uh, uh, Pedridis, uh, who is the founding director of the London's uh, Psychometric Laboratory and current professor of psychology and psychology. Uh, Psychometrics at University College London, UCL. Uh, he is the first ever professor um, of uh, psychometrics at UCL with the birthplace of psychometrics. Um, he is the developer of trait emotional intelligence theory and of the family of trait emotional intelligence uh, questionnaires, uh, which are used in commercial and research settings globally. He's traveled uh, extensively for learning research and uh, teaching purposes on the broader trop- topics of um, Um, trait emotional intelligence, psychometrics, and philosophy of mind. Commercially, he provides consulting services on high-end decision-making, forecasting, and crisis management. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you so much for this wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. Good you're, morning to the listeners. You're very welcome, and thank you for 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 uh, accepting our invitation and being with us today. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you please define uh, your prominent trait EI theory in comparison with ability EI, as well as uh, providing an example of its application, please? Uh, right. Well, my theory and model of emotional intelligence is about self perceptions. In other words what we believe about our emotional world. Uh, It's nothing to do with some kind of objective ability because 
we don't recognize objective abilities in emotions. So emotions are inherently subjective. The way we feel and the way we understand other people's feelings in our emotional world is inherently subjective. So it's all to do about what we believe about our emotions and our abilities, our beliefs about our abilities to understand, manage, and use our own and other people's emotions to achieve our goals. Uh, it's part of my overall system psychobionomy, my trait emotional intelligence theory, which really states that the world is made out of mind. It's made out of stories. It's not made out of atoms. It, it puts mind over matter. So that's the whole approach of, of, of my work, both in trait emotional intelligence and other uh, areas. Mind over matter and emotions over physicality. So um, that's what the, uh, my model is in a about in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you shed some, shed some light on your TQ the, and its fifteen facets, please? Yes. So, so the, the TQ is a trait emotional intelligence questionnaire, and, and because mm-hmm. we know that trait emotional intelligence is uh, so important in our everyday life, in our interactions uh, with other people, in our interactions with our own self, and it really affects pretty much everything that we do, the decisions that we make, the conclusions that we come to, uh, our actions, our motivations, they're all affected by great emotional intelligence. So it's quite important for us to be able to quantify or profile or take an x-ray, if you like, of our uh, emotional profile, of our great emotional intelligence profile, what it looks like for us uh, at a particular point in time. And that's what the TQ does. It allows us to get a, uh, an x-ray a profile of our emotional constitution at a particular point in time. And it provides scores on 15 different facets, like uh, self-motivation, like assertiveness, like emotion perception, like emotion expression. And as you were saying before, uh, how good we believe we are in terms of handling our own emotions, how good we believe we are in terms of handling other people's emotions, and can we use all this information in order to adapt to our environment with success, and, and without conflict with others. So, so that's what the TQ does, is being used globally in uh, all sorts of different settings because emotions uh, permeate our life. They're important in all sorts of different settings, in all sorts of circumstances, from how we uh, uh, perform at work, to how we relate with other people, to how we find a, uh, business partners or romantic partners, all these things are affected by our emotions, by our emotions, and if we don't, uh, pay attention to these dimensions, to the emotional dimension inside us, then sooner or later we run into problems. In other words, the problems that we face in life as individuals and, and collectively are problems that arise from our unwillingness to look inside and work with the inner emotional dimension of our life. If we start doing that, then sooner or later we see that all these problems and challenges get resolved. If we don't do that and we continue to live a life on autopilot, denying the, in, the inner uh, dimension of existence, then the situation becomes very difficult for us and for those around us. It's, it's very simple. So, so the TQ and my work more generally is geared towards helping people discover their inner potential and conquer all the problems and live a, a happy and peaceful life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're very right. It's it's all about understanding, isn't it? I mean, when we, when we, like you mentioned, going into autopilot, that's uh, it's it's something which uh, um, 
which we naturally it just happens to us isn't it i mean we don't think about uh, our emotions and we don't we don't actually delve into these deeper things and because of that uh like you said we go into this autopilot mode and then we just we're just running on 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 our normal uh, speed and pace and and not actually thinking about how we can better ourselves and how we can um look into our emotions properly and and try to tackle them in the best manner as well so i think what you mentioned there uh, really hits uh, hits uh, the nail on the head as well um professor constantine can you tell us a little bit more about your london psychometric laboratory and including the the uh, other affiliated sites as well what what uh, uh, do you offer over there Well, the, the London Psychometric Laboratory has basically two arms. One is a scientific psychological arm, which is where I'm developing all the uh, the theories, all the uh, uh, techniques, all the materials that are intended to help a person in their everyday life. Whether you're driving a, a, a car, or you're opening your your um, corner shop, or you're running a big business, or whatever it is that you're doing, these uh, uh, theories and these models are not abstract. Of course, you have the scientific part of them, which is being developed in the scientific arm of the London Psychometric Laboratory. But then there is the applied, the translational arm of the laboratory, which actually turns these theories and these models into practical insights, into practical techniques, into practical uh, reports and uh, measures and materials that can be used to uh, better improve our everyday life and they're being used in all sorts of settings as i mentioned before from business to medical to relationship counseling to all sorts of different um, um sectors and industries where emotions play a role and and this is pretty much uh, everywhere but it's not just about emotions because as i said my my overarching theory of psychobionomy also has to do with uh, um thinking how to think right how to understand that your future as an individual is the result of your habitual thinking. If you do not interfere, if you do not intervene to improve your thinking, to guide your thinking, to focus your thinking, then simply you go and fall back into this autopilot mode mm. and you live an, an existence that's unexamined and is sooner or later bound to hit uh, uh, a um, dead end. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, that's how life is being set up. So I'm trying to provide all those materials, all those uh, products, all those insights that will allow individuals to take charge of their thinking, take charge of their life, and actually create the reality that they want to experience, rather than be uh, left uh, uh, alone, unguided, and uh, and uh, to the powers of, of, of outside forces that uh, don't have the best interests in mind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a, a saying of uh, the the Holy Prophet Muhammad, uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he he mentioned that no two days of a believer should ever be the same, and and what what that means is basically every single day we should be trying to progress, right? And and like you mentioned, when we when we actually think about these intricate things when we think about these feelings and when we think about these emotions only then will we be able to better ourselves isn't it if we if we just keep going about our day and and just doing the run of the mill stuff uh, and not actually contemplating about these intricate things then we won't be able to tap into our our inner self in which we can better uh, ourselves as well. so I, th i think what you mentioned there is is absolutely necessary um, and it's so essential for us to actually think about these things and ponder upon them so we can become the best versions of ourselves, isn't it? Rather than just uh, sitting back and, and, and waiting for something to happen for us, isn't it?
Yeah, absolutely right. And if we sit back now, things are not, you know, if anything happens to us, it's not going to be according to our liking. Things are going to happen to us, but they're not going to be according to our liking. And I really uh, appreciate the fact that you're, you're bringing scripture to this because many of the ideas that, uh, that I am talking about that I have discovered for myself, I have actually found in scriptures and in the in the writings of um, uh, illustrious individuals from 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 the past, mm-hmm. like enlightened individuals. So a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about is it can be classified under what's known as perennial knowledge. That mm-hmm. this knowledge has always existed, but we're just not tuning ourselves into it. So so absolutely, you know that quote that you gave before is a quote about awareness. You know, no two days should be the same. Actually, not two moments should be the same. Mm-hmm. We should be always aware about how life <clears throat> unfolds and how how it is always fresh and how it is always waiting for us to actually take charge of it and create the reality that we want to experience, create the life that we want to live. If we just uh, sit back and allow things to happen to us, then we're not going to go into any places that we really, really enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's not going you know, the process, if it's left on its own, is not going to take us where we want it to go. So we really do need to take charge of our life, take charge of our thinking, and understand that the future is the result of our habitual thinking. If we if, if we just allow our mind to go on autopilot, if I, I, I allow our mind to just work mechanically, then we're not going to go into any places where we want to go. It's like you know traveling. If you set out to go somewhere yeah. and you don't know where you where you're going, I mean you don't have you just say okay, I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to start driving. Hmm. Let's see where I get. Well, what are the chances that you're going to get where you want to go if you don't even know where you want to go? You're exactly. probably going to end up some place like you know the vast majority of people where they don't like. Mm-hmm. And that's when the bills start, and that's when all the problems start. Yeah. And the drinking, and this and that, and yeah, I don't want to go into all the negative <laughs> stuff. That- yeah, no, no. I mean, you're you're definitely right, um, and 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 that is uh, the the underlying message over here as well. So, uh, thank you for that. Uh, we would have loved to have you on for longer, but unfortunately, we I mean, not unfortunately, but we do have a quite a, a number of guests as well. So we we do need to get to them. Um, thank you, Zakla, once again, uh, and we'd love to 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 speak to you at a later stage as well. Absolutely, have a lovely day. Thank you for the opportunity. Good morning to you and all your listeners. Likewise, thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Professor Constantine Pedri, uh, this uh, founding director of the London Psychometric Laboratory and current professor of psychology and psychometrics at University College London, uh, UCL, sharing his thoughts with us. I mean, uh, excellent uh, conversation and discussion that was. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I, I really, I really liked um, how you linked and how he mentioned that you know every day we should be progressing and how you linked it to the saying of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In which he said that a no believer's a day should be the same. Which uh, and you you very beautifully explained it, and you said that you know, it's um, important that every single day uh, a believer, a person, is always always improving um, and has a as a uh, better day, um, a more productive day than the day before, and no day should be the same. Um, you know, we do have with us uh, Professor Malcolm Higgs, um, who's a professor of leadership and strategy at Birmingham City University Business School and an <clears throat> emeritus professor of Organization organization Behavior at Southampton University. He is also a visiting professor at the Fortune Institute of International Business in Delhi, in India. He is a chartered occupational uh, psychologist and has developed um, psychometric 
instruments for the assessment of emotional intelligence and emotionally intelligent leadership, as well as continuing with consulting activities. Malcolm has published extensively in many leading academic journals, as well as writing a range of books. Um, Professor Malcolm, assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, we, we, we are indeed talking about a very um, interesting topic um, and uh, being a professor um, uh, linked to this topic, we, we have a few questions which we would like to ask you, which is first being is uh, what is the difference between um, EQ, uh, IQ and uh, MQ and, and which is most critical in the world of uh, work? Okay, good question, great question. Um, what's the difference, first of all? Uh, IQ is essentially, basically, your general level of in- intelligence. It's, it's really the, the processor to, of your brain. It's what process, it's that sort of aspect of you that processes the information that you're receiving. EQ is more concerned with the emotions than information. EQ is, is all about how you deal with emotions, um, how aware you are of, of what you're feeling, how aware you are of how your feelings influence your behavior. And then your ability to sort of manage that behavior. And MQ is essentially a, a group of managerial competencies. Um, so, in terms of what we know, we know that certainly you need the processing capability. So, you can't have high emotional intelligence, EQ, um, and low IQ you need at least an average level of uh, intellectual capability to be able to process the emotions. So you need a certain level of of IQ. Uh, It's then emotional intelligence, the emotional quotient that makes the difference. So people who are highly intelligent in traditional sense of IQ, but have low emotional intelligence, don't tend to be very successful at work. We're generalizing here. Um, And it's emotional intelligence that really does seem to make the difference. The managerial competences, the MQ, tends to come into effect more when people are moving into leadership roles. I see, I see. Um, and so if I was going to rank order them, I'd say um, emotional intelligence, IQ, and then MQ. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, that was going to be my follow-up question if you were going to rank them. And uh, I did yeah. mention in, in your, in, in the, in the um, just when we <coughs> introduced you, that you have published you know, extensively in many uh, academic journals and you have uh, written a range of books. Um, in, in light of your um, co-authored book, you know, Making Sense of emotional intelligence um how can you know uh, organizational uh, culture you know impact an individual's uh, competencies um it can have a significant effect on wait it doesn't tend to affect iq <laughs> it certainly affects emotional intelligence um 
rather depends. The emotional intelligence isn't a single thing. Um, what we've identified is that there are seven distinct uh, sub-factors, if you like, that make up emotional intelligence. And some of those are very amenable to alteration. Um, and so an organization's culture can uh, almost punish or suppress people's emotional intelligence. So if you have, for example, an organization that has what I would call a high blame culture, where people are afraid of taking risks, afraid of moving away from exact standard procedures, uh, that will suppress certain elements of emotional intelligence. And if people are doing that for long enough in that organization, that will become much more depressed. Uh, I had, uh, I, when we were developing the book, I came across a, a great example from some work I've been doing with a financial sector organization. One of our components of emotional intelligence is called intuitiveness which is all about the ability to make decisions when you've got ambiguous or incomplete information. Um, and what I noticed, I was doing some work with this financial sector organization, and I noticed in the assessments of all the people we were looking at, the level of intuitiveness on the emotional intelligence scale was very, very low indeed. Mm -hmm. And when we looked at this, it became quite clear that the culture of the organization was such that, first of all, the organization itself had a culture of risk aversion. And it had procedures and practices in place that made sure that mistakes were never made, that everyone had all the information available. So people who'd been working there for a period of time, we found that that particular aspect of emotional intelligence was really suppressed. It was very low level. So the organization culture can make a difference in that sense. And part of emotional intelligence is all about interpersonal sensitivity and being aware of the needs of others when you're interacting. And again, if you're in an organization which is quite, um, autocratic, um, maybe, I, I suppose, comes to mind thinking of some um, uh, some of the big investment banks that are very harsh environments, then that aspect of interpersonal sensitivity can become very suppressed. I see. I see. It's very, uh, very, very interesting. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Professor Malcolm. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for answering our questions. Um, we do hope to have you on uh, the breakfast show again sometime in the near future. Um, until then, have a lovely day and a beautiful, uh, beautiful week ahead. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Malcolm Higgs, uh, a professor of leadership and strategy at Birmingham University, City University Business School, and uh, an emeritus professor of organisation behaviour at Southampton University, sharing his thoughts with us. Um, a very uh, interesting conversation, uh, and and quite a few um, um, important things that he mentioned as well, isn't it? Especially in the uh, in the line of work um, and uh, other such things as well. So. A very insightful uh, conversation there. Um, Jalees, when we look at the five uh, core components 
um, it, when it comes to emotional intelligence, EI, um, is often uh, defined by various uh, models that emphasize different core components or com- competencies. Uh, and three prominent models of EI are the mixed model, ability model, and trait model. So we'll, we'll speak about the five core components or competencies commonly associated with each of these uh, models. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we'll we'll get into that in uh, just a short while. Before we do so, uh, we do have our next guest uh, with us on the line, Dr. Alexandra um, uh, Bujan uh, uh, Bujan of uh, Chon- Bujan of Chinin. Sorry, uh, ap- apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, uh, um, Dr. Alexandra Ali is a senior lecturer in work psycho- psychology at King's Business School, King's College London. Ali uh, lectures on leadership and has a keen interest in emotional intelligence. Through her teaching at King's uh, and her coaching practice, she helps people understand why emotional intelligence is important and how they can develop themselves to be more emotional intelligent. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show. You're very welcome and thank you for, for, for being with us. Um, you say that it's uh, important for leaders to be emotionally intelligent uh, due to the phenomenon of emotional contagion. Um, could you define and delve into that uh, a little bit more, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, your, your previous guests have really um, eloquently explained what emotional intelligence is, so I'll, I'll kind of skip over that. But really, you know, one of the things it's about is this idea of self-awareness, but also um, awareness of others and their emotions and understanding how our emotions affect other people. Um, and so one of the reasons this is really important is because of this idea of emotional contagion. Um, so emotional contagion, as its um, name suggests, is the idea that our Hello? Um, we've just lost you. I'm not sure if you can still hear us. Okay. Um, I think we'll, we'll try to just uh, reconnect uh, with uh, Dr. Alexandra. I think there's uh, probably uh, um, some technical issues there. Um, in the meantime, we were discussing uh, or about to discuss the, the, the mixed model of emotional intelligence. So this was uh, proposed by Daniel Goleman, incorporates both emotional traits and emotional skills. It includes five core components um, and uh, self-awareness being the first, recognizing and understanding one's own emotions, strengths, um, weaknesses, values and goals. So this it involves being in tune with your feelings and understanding how they impact your thoughts and actions. Um, and uh, there's a verse of the Holy Quran as well in, in which it states that, nay, man is fully aware of his own self, even though he puts forward his excuses. So this obviously shows us uh, that we should always be, be, be fully understanding our feelings and getting in touch with our emotions, uh, strengths and weaknesses, values and goals as well to, to order to, in order to better ourselves as well. I believe we have uh, reconnected with uh, Dr. Alexandra Ali. Sorry. Hello there. Okay, perfect. Uh, sorry, you, you, you were saying uh, we were just, um, yeah, we, we, we missed you towards the end of your answer over there. Absolutely. So I was just saying that emotional contagion is important because, um, because feelings are contagious and we transfer our moods to others. And so if you think about, um, for example, in the context that I look at emotional intelligence, looking at leadership, hmm. um, that becomes important because as a leader, I'm role modeling certain 
um, emotions. I'm also spreading certain emotions. And if I'm taking stress into my team, into my workplace, that can be picked up and emulated by others um, around us. Um, and that's important because of the effect of emotion on, on how, how we then um, behave. So, for example, we know that really positive emotions can be hugely impactful for how, um, how we think, whether you know, we, we are more kind of cognitively aware, um, our creativity, our curiosity, things like that. Whereas negative emotions can tend to close down our thinking and our behaviours because we tend to go into survival mode. So it has a really important implication um, both inside and outside of the workplace. Mm-hmm, most definitely, most definitely. And in line with this theme of contagiousness, would you kindly share and, uh, and elucidate um, the familiar three-word slogan you apply to combat it? Yeah, I mean, this came around, the slogan came around um, during the pandemic, actually, when we were kind of being bombarded by that message of hands, face, space, um, that the government put out to remind us that, about hygiene. Um, but it struck me that it was a really nice way to think about this idea of emotional um, contagion. And so sort of hands is really this idea that you, you kind of take emotions in hand and recognize that when you're having an emotional response, um, that sometimes you need to pause and consciously remind yourself that you are in control of your emotions and not the other way around. And that's a, you know, a common misconception people have that they can't control their emotions. Um, then the face aspect is just a reminder for us again that the way that we outwardly convey emotion is you know, that's perceived by people around us. Um, so if you want to make sure that you're um, not spreading you know, negative emotion, the idea that being aware of, of what you're doing in your group or in, in the workplace or wherever you are, and the idea that you can actually change things like your facial expressions, your tone to, to kind of manage that. And then the final element was space. Um, so if you know, for example, that, that you struggle with that, um, the idea that you, you, you know, you know that you can't control your emotions or you struggle with controlling them then perhaps removing yourself from that situation and giving your uh, team or the group around you space rather than potentially spreading that negative emotion Mm. um, throughout the group yeah no no definitely i couldn't agree more i mean it's so it's so important uh, for us to keep these things in our mind at all times as well because obviously um we we our emotions are are, are running uh, all day every day and we we do need to keep them in check and 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 think about them as well uh, and when we consciously think about them that's when we'll be able to effectively use them to to the best of their abilities as well um lastly there for the benefit of our listeners could you kindly enlighten us on on your leading with eq course uh, at king's college London, who is who it is uh, aimed at and uh, how to register for that as well please i absolutely can yeah so so i run a program at king's business school and as you say it's called leading with eq and the idea is it's, it's aimed at leaders or would-be leaders but in reality this could be a helpful set of skills for for almost anybody um and the idea is is through a couple of days uh, participants learn about a number of things that should help them develop their emotional intelligence um so for example um, your previous guest talked about an assessment. We use a very well-known assessment called EQ uh, 2.0, which allows them to get a good understanding across 15 dimensions about their own tendencies, which might be things like their own self-awareness, their assertiveness, their empathy, all of these things that are important to the emotional um, uh, way that we respond. Um, but we also spend a bit of time understanding more about emotional processes. I mentioned a moment ago that a common misconception is that people... I feel they can't control their emotions. And actually, in reality, we, we can. We just haven't built the skills yet to manage them. And mm-hmm. um, so it's focusing on that. 
And I suppose one of the most important skills that I hope people come away um, from this programme with is this idea of reflective practice, the really being able to learn from your experiences um, in a way that is useful to you uh, going forward. And so we really try and embed that skill as well through a number of different activities, learning these skills from other domains as well. So thinking about things like um, improvisation as a way of uh, tapping into these skills. Uh, various interactive interactive activities and so on and so forth and mm. um, hopefully yeah people will come away from it through the coaching through all of these activities with a, a much clearer understanding of themselves and strategies that they could then build on this on with you know trying to improve their eq and and that's open to as i say almost anybody you have to go on our website and have a look at leading with eq um to apply Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, thank you um, for, for answering our questions and, and some some very important things that you mentioned uh, in regards to uh, emotional contagion, the three word slogan um, uh, as well. Um, and I'm, I, I hope our listeners uh, do fully take uh, heed of that as well. Uh, thank you again. And we hope you have a lovely day ahead as well. Thank you. Same to you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Alexandra uh, Ali Bujanov Chainin, uh, who's a senior lecturer in work psychology at King's Business School, uh, King's College. Um, she lectures on leadership and has a keen interest in emotional intelligence as well. <clears throat> Next, we do have with us uh, Professor David, who uh, Professor David worked for fourteen years as a social worker in hospital and community settings, specialising uh, specialising in a dementia care after being a general manager old age psychiatry in an nhs trust he left in 1995 setting up dementia care matters and was the founder and ceo for 22 years up to 2017 david became a global pioneer motivational speaker author and filmmaker evidencing culture change focused on improving quality of life for people living with dementia. He is now the first professor of emotional intelligence in care in the Institute of Health and Care Improvement at York St. John University. Professor David, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Uh, really good to be with you. Uh, likewise, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, just, just moving on to the the first question, we do have, um, uh, we are talking about a very interesting topic. Um, first, first question being, as as the UK's, you being the UK's, you know, first professor in the area, um, what do you believe is emotional intelligence in care? Essentially, uh, my I coined the term that we're more feeling beings than thinking beings. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know people who are emotionally intelligent. You know, they can read in a room. They can name the emotions going on in a room. They're skilled at navigating feelings in relationships with family and at work. And so emotional intelligence in care, in health and social care, is a move away from task-based mm-hmm. care, getting back to the heart of what really matters most to people on the inside. Mm-hmm, I see, I see. And um, we, we've come across the term uh, person-centred care uh, in the media, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But is it, is, it, is, uh, is it um, that synonymous with emotional intelligence in care? Yeah, I mean, person-centred care came about 
in the 1960s from a psychotherapist called Carl Rogers. Mm -hmm. And his work was about seeing the whole person first and, and seeing the whole person in terms of their background, their life history, their values, their feelings, their spirituality. Uh, then person-centered care got adopted by the care sector in the 1990s as a really uh, antidote against task-based care in, in hospitals and in care homes. Mm -hmm. And it was about seeing the whole person again first, looking at their need for comfort, people's need for security, people's need to be occupied, people needing to be known for their whole identity in life, and in particular having a sense of attachment so emotional intelligence in care means not just delivering the task, but really reaching out, connecting being with a person and realizing that their experiences and the person's behaviors have meaning behind them. And that meaning will always be rooted in feelings. Now, in terms of how that relates to emotional intelligence, what I would say is that emotional intelligence is the roots of person-centered care that actually the roots are about our own vulnerability, that you have to hold on to the fact we're all only a flicker away from being vulnerable in life, and that it's holding on to that vulnerability that means when you're with a person with a healthcare need, you remain genuine and authentic with them, that there's no them and us, there's just a sense of common humanity, common feelings in life. I see, I see. Um, and just, just lastly, that brings me to, to my uh, to the last question. Uh, what makes a house or or facility a home in terms of uh, dementia care? Yeah, that's been a, a big question in life over my forty years career in dementia care. What makes a home? Mm. And it's probably a bigger question for all of us in life in terms of what makes a home. And I would say that you know what makes a home is not always the place it's the feeling inside yeah. and so in dementia care uh i was really feeling you know in my 19, in my 20s in the 1970s and 1980s these these places can't be homes they're like social warehouses you know they're locked wards they have double-handed doors they're trapping people in large-scale buildings inside so so what i was against was that what i call social warehousing and the idea was that to get back to giving people a feeling of being at home inside themselves, you have to really know who someone is. You have to be joined in their reality, accept the person as they are. And you have to help that person be surrounded by people who in their, in my words, get it. People have to get each other in life, don't they? And that means being close to someone, reaching, connecting them, and also surrounding them with the stuff of life all the elements of their life in terms of beliefs, objects, things around them to say, you're not just a person with dementia, you're a whole person. You've had a whole life history and we're going to really connect and reach to the whole of you, not just the bit that's a disease. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's that's uh, well explained. Um, Professor David, thank you very much for uh, joining us, for answering our questions. And we do hope we can have you on again on The Breakfast Show uh, sometime soon. Um, have a lovely day and a beautiful week ahead. Thank you. Delighted to contribute. All the best. Thank you very much.
0086877878 is the number for you to call. Uh, we do have with us on the line our next guest, so Jacqueline Hines, um, who is founder of Wilson Hines Consulting Limited, founder and CEO of the so- uh, Society of Emotional Intelligence International UK and Europe, as well as managing partner of uh, Syner- Syner- Synergized Solutions. She is a certified emotional intelligence uh, coach, a master trainer, um, and... Um, Sorry, EISAP uh, 2.0 EQ certification program uh, and leadership consultant with over 25 years of knowledge, skills and expertise with the human resource development arena, uh, working within key corporate and uh, public sector organisations. <coughs> Excuse me. Assalamualaikum. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, could you kindly start off uh, by introducing the multilateral approach to emotional intelligence and explain why it is needed now more than ever? Right, okay, thank you. Um, the multilateral approach to emotional intelligence is a tri-dimensional model and it was born out of the pandemic, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It consists of emotional intelligence, the practices and principles of it, Um, cultural intelligence and emotional resilience and if we go back to what it was like where everybody was online everybody was under lockdown everyone that sort of like was used to being out and about doing things were now confined and everything was virtual Mm. so people were stressed they weren't they weren't prepared for it So a lot of their emotional health and well-being was impacted. And um, I found myself doing a lot more coaching online with leaders and their staff around the model. So that's where it it came about. So it was giving individuals, you know, bite size of emotional intelligence, cultural intelligence, helping them navigate their landscape, but also giving them the practices and principles of emotional resilience. So, you know, looking at the personal model and then applying it to themselves. Why it's needed more now than ever is we're moving towards, you know, a more hybrid way of working. People, you know, who've been under the bubble of COVID, you know, in the virtual space, a lot of them are not wanting to go back out to work to how things were before. So they have to now manage a new way of working for themselves and proceed with that. So each of these um, models work separately, but they intersect very well together. So when you give somebody who feels disillusioned or disempowered, you know, this as a gift, they then apply it to themselves and their working condition, their social status, and other challenges that they may face. So Mm. that's why it's important. Yeah, yeah. And very much needed. Definitely, definitely. Um, in light of your book, uh, Journey to Empowerment, Tackling the Bullies Within, uh, if you feel comfortable, of course, could you kindly mm-hmm. share your story of emotional resilience? Right, okay. So um, my book, Journey to Empowerment, Tackling the Bullies Within, it starts from the schoolyard. So I go through and I share my story about bullying and harassment from school in the workplace. You know, no part of our social setting, we're exempt. And um, what I share with the reader is 
how I tapped into not only emotional intelligence, but emotional resilience to navigate the landscape as I went through my career journey and up the pathway, especially as a senior leader being bullied by a more senior leader. Mm. How did I manage that? And the emotional resilience around that was because I was supporting, coaching and training other people who were being bullied, that was cathartic for me because I didn't have to think about or focus on what was happening to me. I was supporting other people because they were going through it and they needed the support. I needed it as well, Mm -hmm. but at the time I put my feelings aside. So my emotional resilience around that and part of my healing was to be supporting and helping other people. The real healing came when I actually left the job and got headhunted and went to the Middle East for a year. That's when the healing started for me. Mm -hmm. So my emotional resilience was able to be bolstered um, in terms of being able to put things down, pick things up, but being able to forgive and move on. Yeah. I mean, it, it does take uh, a huge uh, emotional courage as well to to do that, and uh, and so hats off as well. Um, and, and it's a, it's a lesson for our listeners as well that uh, if we, if we, in the face of adversity, we should also always uh, persevere and and be patient uh, and and try to forgive. Um, and this mm. is a, a, what obviously uh, Islam teaches us as well. Um, as founder of uh, Society of Emotional Intelligence International. Um, what is uh, its goal and uh, which key courses of yours would you recommend to our listeners uh, that they can take advantage of? Right, okay. Yeah, as the founder um, of the society, what I try and do in everything that I do, whether it's on a one-to-one basis or team or organisational level, is enable, empower and motivate the individuals to be the best that they can be. So, you know, the goal is to get people to realize um, they can navigate an emotionally intelligent world, mm-hmm. their world, and they can apply the practices and principles not only to themselves, but if they're leaders, with their workforce. You know, so I, I do a range of courses. Like you mentioned before, I do an EQ certification program. I've got two EQ models that I use. I'm a certified coach for the um, ESAP 2.0, but I'm also a certified coach for the EQI, which is an online EQ assessment, and I use that for leaders. Mm -hmm. And that looks at how leaders see themselves and how they actually manage the workforce. So, you know, as a leader, if you think about... um, empathy, stress tolerance, decision making. Those are, you know, a couple of the key things. So I I run a coaching program around that where the individuals do the online learning and then we have one to one feedback. They have a personal report. So I go through that with them. So that's that's one of them. I've also I've got the EQ certification program, mm-hmm. um, the ESAP, and that actually gives individuals um the um certification to sort of like use those practices and principles and weave it into their own specialism they get 
you know, the letters after their name, CEP, Certified ESAP 2.0 Practitioner, but also they get a digital badge which they they use on, you know, their email. So they can sort of like comfortably say, yes, I am certified, I'm accredited in this, and then they weave it into their specialism. What I tend to do is I tend to do bespoke. So I will do the overarching programs where people can you know, tap in and understand emotional intelligence, emotional resilience and cultural intelligence. So give it to them in bite-sized chunks. Mm -hmm. But the coaching element, um, you know, individuals will will think, yes, I've, I've spoken about it, I've gone online. You need somebody who understands it to train you before yeah. you go out and sort of like <laughs> preach the EI gospel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, what I would encourage people to do is, you know, if not me, look for somebody who is certified yeah. where you can either get coached or go through the EQ training. And, and also if individuals do the assessments, because that is what you keep, that is what, you know, you input in, whatever is inside you comes out and then the coaching helps you to fill the gaps, to balance them out. So that's what I would encourage and recommend for listeners. Look on my website, you know, look, connect with me on LinkedIn. You can see a lot of what I do there as well. But get somebody who can actually upskill you, mm -hmm. who's accredited. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, thank you, uh, Jacqueline, for, for, for that, for, for being with us, answering our questions and sharing with us your thoughts uh, about how to go about this as well. Uh, so, yeah, like, thank, like I said, thank you uh, again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much for inviting me. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Jacqueline Hines, emotional intelligence uh, coach at Society of Emotional Intelligence International UK and Europe. Uh, moving on, we do have Dr. Audrey with us, who is a chartered psychologist, British Psychological Society, and award-winning business author with a focus on practical tools for well-being. She hosts podcasts, um, Retrain retrain Your Brain for Success and the Wellbeing Lounge on NLive Radio. Um, she, she uh, the second, um, second place silver female presenter of the year 2022 in the Community Radio Awards, presented shows on disruptive TV and provided psychology contribution to Channel 4's don't diet, lose weight, and the Chrissy B show on uh, Sky. Um, Dr. Audrey, thank you for joining us. Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you for joining us again, and welcome to the breakfast show. Uh, yes, just we, we have a couple of questions. Um, we, we're glad we have you um, on on our show today. Um, the the f first question um, being is why. Might we not grow up to be emotionally intelligent? When it comes to emotions, we can often learn a lot by our role models, which means that if we have grown up in a culture or an environment where the role modeling has been simply, oh, uh, just just put on a smiley face or or put on your big girl pants or be mummy's little soldier and don't show emotions, don't cry, big boys don't cry, and so on. We can be taught to suppress and repress 
our emotions. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, even a simple phrase like calm down can make us think emotions are wrong. And because emotions don't necessarily always feel very nice, if we already think that they're a problem because for some reason this has been taught to us or we've seen it modeled before us, we may never grow up listening to them or learning from them and we just continue to repress them and push them aside or try and remove them through unhealthy behaviors such as comfort eating or something to take away the unpleasant feeling. And that that can be one reason as to how we can grow up without really exploring and understanding our own emotions and therefore developing our emotional intelligence. I see, I see. Um, so I, I guess uh, you know the, the follow-up question would be, uh, what are your four tips for when one is at the point of uh, trigger? Well, um, Salovia Mayer, uh, researchers looked at emotional intelligence and outlined four areas of this. Emotional perceptions, so being able to recognize the emotions, emotional reasoning, being able to sort of think through them, then emotional understanding of yourself and others, and lastly, emotional management, which is emotions being expressed effectively. So once at the point of trigger, it can actually be better to do something to calm ourselves down, such as um, the 54321 technique, look around and name five things that you can see, four things that you can hear, three things you can touch, and so on. Um, I, I wanted to give some tips around those four areas of being able to build our emotional intelligence a little bit more effectively. Now, as I said, this needs to come outside the point of crisis because often at the point of crisis, the best thing is often do something to get yourself out of your head and stop spiraling those negative automatic thoughts. But some of these techniques, if we actually look around and practice these outside the point of crisis, that can actually build a buffer to when we are feeling emotional and it can just keep us a little bit more balanced for a little bit longer. So emotional perception, for example, you can just do this by looking at emojis and um, see how many emotions you can name. The more you can name, the more of a nuance you can have in understanding and thinking about emotions themselves. Because somebody who's upset may not just be upset, they may be lonely, they may be fearful, they may be angry. And being able to recognize which one that is, will allow us to respond more um, effectively in a more targeted way. Recognizing that in ourselves helps as well. Emotional reasoning, so rather than taking something personally or too quickly at face value, you can ask yourself, is there a different way I could have interpreted this? It might be that someone blanks us and we get angry immediately, but maybe the actual reason was they're so caught up with their own issues, they're too preoccupied to actually see us. And asking ourselves that question, is there a different way this could have been interpreted? Emotional reasoning, that can actually help us. We might even end up reaching out to them rather than being angry secretly at them. Um, Emotional understanding can be better built by using a technique from rational emotive therapy, which is the ABCD technique. And that is A, understand what activated, what triggered us and what made us feel so emotional. B, understand what behaviors or beliefs followed on from that. So it might be the triggering event was that we were told off or we were nice. And then naturally we start believing, oh, I'm stupid. I can't do this. I, I, I won't reach out again. C is then reflect on the consequences. And if we can do that, we might then realize, well, actually, if I don't reach out again, how will people know when I am 
actually able to to answer that question or <laughs> or how might people realize that I was right I just didn't explain myself very well and yeah. then the D is to help us dis- dispute that belief or find a different behavior that could apply and then finally when it comes to emotional management one technique is just um, a nice simple one from dialectic behavior therapy and that is the stop technique the S stands for stop. When you realize you're in this emotional cycle of perhaps having the same argument over and over again, just stop. T is take a step back. Think about what you want the outcome to be and then observe other options of behavior is the O. Once you've done that, proceed but by trying something new because one thing that you do know will happen if you keep just going around in this same vicious cycle, nothing is going to change. Yeah. So those would be some of my top tips to build our emotional intelligence. Awesome, awesome. That's that's uh, that's really good. I'm sure our listeners um, did uh, have benefited from that. Um, we are reaching um, the end of our show. We did have, you know, uh, just uh, um, one or two questions more, but hopefully in the future we can have you on again on the show and we can uh, dive uh, into these this topic and ask you more questions about um, this. It was very. Um, very good and informative to have you on our show um thank you very much for joining us have a lovely day and a beautiful week ahead thank you so much you too thank you very much Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you that was dr audrey tang a chartered psychologist broadcaster and author sharing her thoughts with us just uh, summing up um coming to an end uh, for for the show as well the emotional intelligence uh, of course, has a quint, uh, quincorporatite uh, structure to it, according to Goldman's mixed models. So there's self-awareness, there's self-regulation, social skill, empathy, and motivation. All of these aspects are modelled by our beloved Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Muhammad, who was the embodiment of the Holy Quran. Um, and he has he had such a high uh, EI, um, and it's likely what uh, attracted so many people to him as well. Um, and this is the model that we should be following. One of our guests mentioned that uh, uh, she's uh, um, that you have to model as well, um, and people see that and emulate that as well. So this is something that we should also be copying. That's all that we have time for. Here's the nine o'clock news.